haven't met you, my name is Gavin, and let me say Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. I like this guy. I need more amens up front. Hey, today uh, he's excited, and I'm excited, and we're excited because we are here together to celebrate the most important, the most consequential, the most world-changing event in all of human history, and that is the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're new at City Light, we really love Jesus because Jesus really loves us, and there is no one like Jesus. There's no one greater than Jesus. There is no hope greater than the hope that comes from Jesus, and there is no news worth celebrating more than the news of the arrival of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So tonight, if, if you're new to the church family, we've been studying the gospel of Luke for an entire year. We dropped anchor last January. We're still going. Luke is a biography of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, but we saved this passage for tonight as we get to zoom in and look at the birth account, the arrival, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take a look at that together this evening. But as we do so, I want to invite you with me to take a look at this very familiar story from what may perhaps be a fresh angle for many of us. I read an article earlier in this week that sort of reframed the way I've experienced Christmas this week and actually reshaped my entire outline and structure for tonight's sermon. And, uh, and so consider with me um, this lens on the Christmas story. Typically, when we think about Christmas... We're celebrating a sort of finish line, right? We sing, we sing the Christmas hymn, Long Lay the World in Sin and Air Pining. We've been waiting. The people of God have been anticipating the arrival of the Savior. And of course, at Christmas, we celebrate, you know, ta-da, he's here. He's come. The Savior has come. It is a finish line. And while it is very much a finish line, the arrival of the anticipated Messiah, it also in many ways doesn't just mark the end of a wait. It actually marks the beginning of a battle. It was the first shot, as it were, in a cosmic conflict for the salvation of humanity. So for Tracy Cogdale and the rest of you that think that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, you may actually be right. It is a battle. It's the beginning of a battle. Consider what author Philip Yancey has to say. He says, quote, from God's viewpoint and Satan's, Christmas signals far more than the birth of a baby. It was an invasion, the decisive advance in the great struggle of the cosmos. Moreover, consider what theologian Chad Bird writes when he writes, silent night, violent night, hell and heaven meet to fight. Wars have been waged over money, property, honor, power, and oil, but this war, the greatest conflict in human history, is over us. So this year, as we consider afresh this Christmas story, once again, I want to invite you to consider the battle of Christmas, or more specifically, what exactly is God's tactical strategy to save the world? How is it that light would come in and overcome darkness, that good would come in and, and, and overcome the evil in the world, that Jesus would come and save his people from their sin? What is his strategy? To answer that question, I want to look at our text, and I want to bring to your attention that there are two distinct pictures, two very opposite postures in our text that couldn't be any more antithetical to one another. The first picture 
is a picture of might. A mighty military, a political power, wealth unimaginable. The second picture is a picture of meekness. Humble people living with very little, trusting God in their humble dependence. And what we're going to see is that God's tactical advance to, to enter in and save the world in the greatest conflict ever experienced, that he wouldn't come through the mighty systems of the world, but rather in meekness with a simple message of salvation. And so let's look at this from the text. Together, we're going to take a look at the mighty, the meek, and the message of Christmas. First, let's take a look together at the mighty. Our passage starts off with this in verse 1, where it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. So the first character in our scene that Luke introduces us to is Caesar Augustus. Of course, he's the first emperor, or he's the first um, emperor of the Roman Empire. If you didn't know from world history, this guy is kind of a big deal. After taking the reins of the Roman Empire in 27 BC, Caesar Augustus managed to expand the, the entire empire significantly, annexing what is really virtually all of Europe, most of northern, northern Africa, and the entire Middle East. Uh, he was one of the most prominent leaders, leading the most prominent and expansive empires in the history of the world. He gave himself the nickname Augustus because it means great or revered. He was powerful and he knew it. This man developed roads that connected the known world. He developed the mail system, a police force, firefighting services to protect and serve the empire. He had unprecedented military leadership and administrative skills. Caesar Augustus was the leader of the known world. And he was an amazingly powerful man. And verse 1 says he's going to call for a census. And the logistics, we find out, were to be carried about by a man named Quirinius. Quirinius, we don't have a lot of details about. He's most likely a trusted member of, of Caesar Augustus' cabinet. He's probably his trusted right-hand man. He most likely has um, very impressive administrative skills to, to take on this census. Because keep in mind, this is no small task. They issued an imperial edict demanding that everyone return to their hometown to be counted. All of the known world had to travel back to their father's lineage and be counted manually. Caesar couldn't check his Facebook and see how many friends he had. There was no Google Analytics. There was no mailer that he could just send out and said there would have been tens of thousands of, of, um, of census workers traveling to different regions to count and take inventory of every single man, woman, and child in the, in, in the known world, one by one. Now, this census that they're taking on is important for two reasons. The first, Caesar Augustus is completely oblivious to. Of course, we now know that it was because of this census that Joseph had to travel with his family from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which would fulfill the Old Testament of Micah chapter 5 and 2 that says that the Savior of the world would come through Bethlehem. And so, by the way, we see God's sovereign hand orchestrating the events and unfolding of world history to accomplish his purposes. But additionally, second, secondarily, the census provides a contrasting backdrop for the birth of Jesus. Here's why. An emperor would take a census for two reasons. To identify his wealth and his power. Number one, he wants to know his tax base. From who can I exact taxes from? Number two, he wants to know the number of grown men that are at his disposal for the military. 
And so he wants to know the full extent of his wealth and his power. This is Caesar's post-workout mirror flex when the blood is flowing. This is Caesar online checking how much money is in his checking account. This is Caesar looking at the progress of his 401k. He is taking inventory of his might, the might of his nation and his leadership. And by the way, he's going to like the results of the census. At this time, the Roman Empire was growing dramatically. The military was unmatched and the wealth at his disposal was unparalleled in human history. Never in the history of the world had there been a living picture of such might in one nation, in one man. So maybe this is the plan. Maybe God would send a savior who would join the ranks of Caesar in Rome, a mighty political movement who would leverage this unimaginable wealth for good, who would flex this never-before-been-seen power on sin and on evil and on the devil to bring about salvation and peace on earth. But what's fascinating about the Christmas story and about the battle of the ages is that the Savior doesn't show up actually among the mighty. He doesn't come running for office or leveraging military prowess or flexing on the earth. Rather, as the eternal God, the all-powerful divine creator of the cosmos comes in as he rips a hole into time and into space and enters into his own creation on mission to save the world, he places himself not in the midst of the mighty, but meekly in a cold, lowly manger. Jesus enters the human story, not among the mighty, but among the meek. So let's take a look now at this meekness. We see it pick up in verse 4. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I know this story is familiar. I know it's also filled with nostalgia and warm feelings in uh, grandma's nativity scene. But can we take a look at this scene on its face for just a moment and acknowledge in human terms what is happening here? Okay, so the next characters that Luke introduces us to are Mary and Joseph, and they are in every way antithetical to Caesar and Quirinius. They're poor, not rich. They're rural, country folks, not urban, city leaders. They're powerless, not powerful. Mary and Joseph are likely junior high aged, maybe late teens at the oldest. They're from a small, unimpressive, indistinguishable town from the towns around them. Joseph was a blue-collar dude. He's got calloused hands, got, gets dirty at work. He made an honest living. He wasn't particularly educated. He was certainly not a part of the religious or political elite of his day. Mary is an unwed uh, teenage expecting mother. Many people thought she was crazy for making a story up about a virgin birth. Many people thought Joseph was a fool for falling for her alibi and sticking with his unfaithful fiance. But with a tarnished reputation and an uncertain future and few comforts and resources at their disposal, they traveled to Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown, so they could be counted in Caesar's census. 
Verse 7 says that there were no rooms in the inn, likely because of all the visitors coming back into town. Because of the edict, they had to go to be counted in the census. So the town is now crowded. It's chaos. There's people everywhere. The Holiday Inn is all booked up. Joseph, who's got a pregnant fiance to care for, does the best he can, and he takes shelter in a space designed for animals. Now, men in the room, husbands, fathers, join with me in imagining how Joseph feels in this moment. Mary is young and scared. Many women in this time did not survive through childbirth. And here it is, she's going about it for the very first time. She's away from home. Her mother is not there to help her. Her sisters are not there to help her. Her girlfriends are not there to help her. She's nervous. She's exhausted from traveling so far while pregnant. And then she goes into labor. And the best Joseph can come up with is a barn. He's feeling like dad of the year right now living his best life right there. Here, honey, let me, let me push this cow out of the way and muck the stall. This would be a great place for you to have your first child. It's uh, not exactly the Methodist Women's Hospital. My youngest two children were born at the Methodist Women's Hospital. It's amazing. After birth, they served us filet mignon that we ate on leather recliners. I wanted to ask him, is there any way we can just stay here for about a week? I think there's some complications you should look into. I think we really need to stay for observation for a little bit uh, of time. Uh, but for Mary and Joseph, there, there also were filet mignons in leather. It just happened to be still mooing in the bar next to them. That's their experience. Very different from my experience at Methodist. So picture Joseph again here. He's not flexing in the mirror. He's not taking a census of his might. Oh no, instead his head is low. His situation is humble. So you can picture the scene. This is not a glamorous scene. Mary's stressed out. Joseph's frustrated. The place smells like a petting zoo. Mary's water has just broke. Her contractions are getting closer together. And where does Jesus enter the story? Where does God's divine rescue mission, his tactical advance on the evil of the world, where does it kick off? Right here. He doesn't show up in the mansion. He doesn't show up in the capital city of Rome. He doesn't show up among the mighty. He puts his own might on display by showing up right here among the meek. In the middle of the chaos and the stress and the stench, the God of the universe, God, King, Creator, Lord, Eternal, Divine says, this is perfect. Sign me up for the manger. City Life, this is amazing. This is our God. This is how salvation was won. God doesn't operate in the ways of the world. He doesn't need the might of men to accomplish his ways. Instead, he puts on his great power on display through the meekness in ways that we would never expect. He launches the battle of the ages from an animal's feeding trough under the care of two overwhelmed and exhausted teenagers. And can I share why I think this is good news for us tonight as well? I just want to say, if, if the circumstances of your life look more like the dung-filled, chaotic, stressful, messy manger than the sanitized mansion of the mighty, you are in the exact place that Jesus loves to show up. Maybe this year you've been convicted of your sin, and maybe that's what drew you to church tonight. I finally caught up with you that, you know what, maybe the Bible is right when it says that we have all missed the mark, and you have seen your own sin hurt real people that you love. Maybe you've been wounded by the sin of other people, because by the way, everyone you interact with is also a sinner, and you realize sins have consequences, life is messy and difficult, and I need some help beyond myself. Maybe that's what drew you in here tonight. 
More importantly, maybe you've realized that your sin has actually separated you from the holy and perfect God that your heart longs to know and love and be loved by. Now, let me say this. Oftentimes, when we come to that realization, when we realize, man, everything in my life is not okay. I'm living in the manger. This is messy, and it stinks. Our first temptation, our first inclination is often wrong. Our first impulse is often to actually go the route of the mighty, like Caesar, to actually take a census to say, yeah, that's really bad, but... And we start to take inventory of the good things in our lives to sort of mitigate the bad things in our lives. And we say, well, at least I'm a good father. I do anything for my kids. Well, at least I go to church and I serve. That's got to account for something. Or maybe we compare ourselves to other people and say, well, at least I'm not like that, so I must be doing better because I'm not like that guy. We take a census of our strength and our might rather than recognizing the desperate situation that we find ourselves in and coming to terms with the fact that we are all sinful, broken, messy people. But listen, the invitation of Christmas is not to flex our might. It's actually to welcome and receive Jesus into our mess in meekness. 2,000 years ago, God started his divine rescue plan among the weak and the meek. And in 2022, he is still showing up among the weak and the meek. And what is his message? When he comes to the manger, when he comes into the world, into our brokenness and sin, what does he come declaring? How is it that the world will, will be saved and sin will be defeated and, and, and death and the hell and, and, and the devil will be undone for all times? Last point, let's look together at the message of Christmas. The message. Go back to the text in verse 8. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So get this real quick. The eternal divine, the second member of the Trinity, God himself has just advented on earth, and we need to get the word out. God is going to send out some angels to make this announcement. And who does he give the first announcement to? Some shepherds watching their sheep by night. We don't even catch their names. We don't know their names. All we know is they're, they're late-night workers. Best equivalent is these are the guys working 2 a.m. at the QT next to the casinos in Council Bluffs. That's a night shepherd, okay? They are, they are low social rung on the social, um, on the social ladder. But it seems that this theme of God's meek arrival continues with the announcement to some simple shepherds. Skip down now to verse 10. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The message of Christmas is that a Savior has come. And friends, this is exactly what we needed. God didn't send a preacher to give us a pep talk or a religious leader to give us some new rules to follow. He didn't give us a teacher to educate the world or send an economist to, to raise the standard living for all people. He sent a Savior to save us from our greatest problem, which was our sin. And verse 1 says that the Savior is for all people, not just the mighty, not just the church kids, not just men, not just women, but all people who would trust in him to be their Savior. The message is that the meekness of God is mightier than the might of this world. Think about this for just a second. Caesar Augustus, that we were introduced to in verse 1, died at age 75. A couple hundred years later, the entire empire falls apart. 
Jesus was born in a barn. 2,000 years later, one, he's still alive. Two, his kingdom is actually still growing and expanding. So much so that today, some 2.2 billion people follow Jesus and say, that's my king. I am loyal to him alone. That's amazing. How did God do it? How did he come to save the world and establish a kingdom that would never end? How did he win the war for souls and establish his kingdom? He came in meekness. He resisted the devil in humility. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. Then he rose on the third day, overcoming death once and for all. And the good news is that he did it because he loves you. Yes, he's the God of the of the cosmos. Yes, he's the eternal divine. Yes, he's the savior of the world. But did you know that he's also a personal savior? And he went to this great length. He showed up in meekness. Why? To associate with you in your brokenness. He came because he loves you. He loves you personally. He's inviting you to trust him, to be saved by him, to let him meet you in your sin and your brokenness and your weakness, to let him be the hero of your story, that you would give him your sins and that he would give you his salvation. This afternoon, if you have not yet, would you receive this good news? That means not just an abstract understanding of this idea, but it means personally believing by faith that Jesus came at Christmas, Christmas because he loves you that he died not just for the sins of the world, but for your sins, and that he rose to give new life, not just to all the earth, but to you. Would you receive that personally? Now let me slow down and, and just clarify this, specify a little bit more, because I know every time I give this invitation for people to trust Christ, invariably, here's what's happening in hearts and minds as they listen in. What, they start, what people start doing, and maybe you're starting to do, is you start to make a mental list of all the things that you need to start and all the things you need to stop. Like you're saying, yeah, yeah, pastor, I know, I know, I know, you're right, I need to start living better. I need to stop some things, I need to start doing some other things. In 2023, I'm going to commit to reading my Bible, I'm going to cut back on a few things, it's time to start living for God. Listen, all of that is great, but the message of Christmas is not that you need to start living for God. If that's your strategy to get back to God, to be in relationship with God, then you have grossly underestimated the divide between you and God between your sin and his holiness. That gap is way too great. It's so great that no self-improvement plan can fix it, no moral religious devotion can save you, no New Year's resolution to drink less, to give more, to be a better person can solve your greatest problem. The message of Christmas isn't that you need to start living for God, but that God came to live for you, that God came to die for you, that God came to be your substitute. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to respond in, in two ways. Number one, some of you, you need to trust Jesus for the first time. You need to accept this. You need to quit trying to live for God and get back to God and actually receive the good gift that he's given you, that it's his righteousness, that it's his perfection, that you bring only your sin to the equation and he brings all the salvation. So Romans 10 and 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, would you call in the name of the Lord? Would you turn and receive his forgiveness? Would you humble yourself, acknowledge you could never save yourself, and call on Jesus? Jesus, I have missed the mark. I need your salvation. He loves to give it freely because he loves you, and he brought you here tonight to hear that message. Number two, whether this is your first time or your 50th time celebrating Christmas as a Christian, as a believer, 
I think our response should be profound worship. What a, what a profound mystery that the God of the universe came to rescue us. And he did it in such an unassuming way. That he didn't come by the way of the might and the powers of this world, but he came in meekness. And in meekness, his power and his might was put on display. That we might see that it's the power of God alone that saves sinners like us. And so would you stand to your feet? Let me pray. And let's respond in singing and worship tonight. Oh, Jesus, what a profound mystery that the God of the universe declared war on sin, death, and the devil, and the way you made your tactical attack on all the evil of the world was to be born in a manger. And yet from that place, from a place of humility, you fulfilled all the requirements of the law. You earned a righteous standing before the Father in our place. Oh, God, we say thank you. You died a death on the cross and rose victorious to give us new life. And now, God, in response, we say, we call on your name. Jesus, we acknowledge together, we need you. We welcome you this Christmas into our hearts and into our lives. Thank you that you are the Savior who has come. And even now, as we sing or as we leave this place and we exchange gifts and we feast on food and we laugh and, and, and we spend time together, I pray that all of it wouldn't just be nostalgia marking the end of a year, but it would be sincere worship in our hearts well up in us a Christian gratitude this Christmas to be acknowledging and, and, uh, and, and appreciating all that you've done for us. And so receive our praise now as we respond in singing. In Jesus' name, amen.